Welcome to Still Dead from Chipperish Media. I'm researcher Dr. Kelly Jones, and the curiosity's gonna kill me. And I'm story expert and vicious bitch, Lonnie Diane Rich. And we're here today to talk about Angel, Season 3, Episodes 5 and 6, Fredless, which is a skipper, and Billy, which is a watcher. Now, before we begin, today's episode discussions are going to include trauma, misogyny, and basic human darkness. If the things in these episodes are disturbing or upsetting to you, you might want to skip these episodes of Angel and this episode of Still Dead. But it's okay. If you ever want or need to come back to any of it, it'll be here waiting for you. But if today isn't the day for it, today is not the day, and making that decision is not a sign of weakness. Let's raise the stakes. In Fredless, Fred's parents come looking for her after tracking down a letter she sent them and finding Angel Investigations. Fred sees them and runs to Lorne, who tells her she hasn't run far enough, leading us to believe that her parents are evil. But when the gang brings her parents to find her at the bus station, we see that her fear is acknowledging her trauma. If her parents are there and they see her, it's real. Before Fred has time to reunite with her parents, a pointless bug demon drops from the ceiling and attacks, and everyone works together to take it down, including Fred's mom, who runs it over with a bus. Back at the hotel, Fred decides she should go home and live a normal life until she sees crystals forming on her jacket and instantly understands the motivations of the pointless bug demon. It's just trying to collect its children. Back at the Hyperion, the bug demon attacks, and Fred gets there just in time to save the day. She decides to stay with Angel Investigations. She can't ever go back to the way things were. Her parents stay long enough to help her paint over all the scribbling she put on the walls of her room, thus finally dealing with and putting away her trauma. Fredless aired on October 22nd, 2001. It was directed by Marita Gerabak and written by Mayor Smith. All right, so Fredless... Dr. Kelly Jones, on a scale of zero to six, our completely random and weird perfect happiness scale, <laughs> zero is stake this, six is lost your soul. Where'd you land with Fredless? I gave this a four. Okay. Um, the parental misdirects and the monster movie jokes and that gross bug demon, like they drive me nuts. But I love Fred. And more importantly, this episode has one of my all time favorite moments from the show. So I had to give it a four. All right. I like that. I can't wait to hear which moment that was. Um, For me, it's also a four. There's a lot of like not great stuff in this episode. The mislead with Fred's parents being coded as evil, which is in direct contradiction to everything after the reveal that they're not evil. Uh, The stupid killer bug demon, that's completely dumb. And some inconsistent character beats. But the representation of trauma and the emotional through line in this episode are good enough to save it for me. And I really do like it. Yeah, I like it too. All right. So what do you have for moments of perfect happiness? So um, a tiny thing at the beginning, but Angel complaining about the weapons cabinet being all different just <laughs> delights me for some reason. I don't know I why. I like how we get that, that, you know, sense of detail, you know, for yeah. Angel, that there are certain things that he just absolutely has to have a certain way. And I guess after you've lived for a couple of centuries, you get a system down. Right. You think, think, I don't want to change at 47. He's 250 some at this point. So, I mean, he really doesn't want to change. And your battle axe should always be in the same place. It should. (laughs) I just thought it was really cute. Yeah. Uh, What absolutely delights my heart is Cordy and Wes acting out Buffy and Angel. (laughs) 
Yes. Like, that is one of my favorites from the whole show. When Wesley says, I love you so much, I almost forgot to brood. And, <laughs> and she's like, kiss me, bite me. And then Angel walks in and says, how about you both bite me? And I'm just love it It i love it really cute it's really cute and i love seeing wesley getting into the joking around like we have gotten to a point he used to be goofy and he was the butt of the joke and i didn't particularly care for that and then he became so serious that nothing is ever funny you know so Mm -hmm. it was kind of fun for him to be actually making the joke which i like yeah and he took it so seriously like he took off his glasses first because he was getting in character and so great it was so great (laughs) yeah no that was really great it was a very very fun moment yeah it was and and I liked Angel in this episode like Mm -hmm. I liked Angel going for ice cream and I loved it when he said Dursler beasts are pretty Faulknerian a lot of sound no fury I know yeah it's it's just great yeah anytime yeah and you've got these literary references that are kind of coming through and and this other side of Angel um, that we also saw at the end when Cordy's like treating everybody and bandaging everybody up. Mm-hmm. And she says, next up, multiple stab wounds. Come on, Angel. And he like hops up and jumps <laughs> down on the couch and he's so happy and he's so enthusiastic about like, it. And- with multiple stab wounds after just right? having fought this thing. I was like, okay, he if he's got such bad injuries, you know, he might want to be a little bit like, you know, slower about it. But it was really, really cute. And then I love the way she just laughs and calls him a dork. Yeah. You know? <laughs> it was just it was but, really like, adorable. Enthusiastic Angel. In any form, yes. you know, it mm-hmm. just delights me to no end. Um, but but the star of this, of course, was Fred. Yeah. And she was so great mm-hmm. in this episode. And there was that moment toward the end where she almost named the five-man band. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that was just great. Like, she called Angel the champion and Wesley the brains and Gun the muscle and Cordy the heart. And then she kind of trailed off mm-hmm. because she didn't know how to label herself. Yeah, she didn't know her role. Right. Right. And I like that because we also, like we talked about before, mm-hmm. we see those roles change. Yeah. Um, but I, it just, I thought that was really cool. Um, but my favorite Fred moment was her naming all of the feelings. And I mean, like, all of the feelings <laughs> when Angel asked, asked how she was doing. And she's like, fizzy, kind of weird and fizzy, but excited, a little sad, thankful, sort of cautiously happy, relieved and worried at the same time, and <laughs> slightly nauseous while still being hopeful. It's <laughs> like, well, that about covers it. Like, she's nothing yes. if not thorough. Exactly. <laughs> and I love that, too, because if you ask me how I'm feeling, I'm going to be like, okay. And then if I have to name them, it's going to be right. like 20. So. I get it. Like, I don't That's know. Great. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> then here's every possible thing I'm feeling yeah. at the same time. It was great. Mm-hmm. And I love her telling her story in a fairy tale. Yeah. You know, and, and she has this, you know, once upon a time, there was a girl in a horrible cave. And, and, and it, but that's also one of the things that makes her feel younger to me yeah. than she really is. Yeah. Like her parents are searching for her. She has this. I don't want to call it innocent because it's not that, but, mm-hmm. but she feels younger, yeah. you know, than mm-hmm. she is. And, mm-hmm. but she realizes that Angel can't save her this time, you know, that she has to make her own choices. And, and I like seeing how smart she is. I like that her intelligence is what Wes is going to miss most about her. Yeah. And I like that she invents things that kills demons and also <laughs> makes toast. <laughs> right. 
I love Wesley's smile when he says, or it makes toast, you know, it's just this really, really nice moment. But I also liked, you know, her retelling the story, because that's part of the processing of trauma, you know, Mm -hmm. is telling your story, but she tells it in third person. She creates this fairy tale. She distances herself from it. And given everything else that happens in this episode, I thought that was a really nice way of having her, you know, showing how she is trying to process her trauma while still keeping as much distance between that and her reality, you know, as possible. That was really nicely done. I think so, too. And I like that we weren't glossing over it or... Right, right. We didn't erase her trauma. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then we get that really, you know, beautiful, heartbreaking visual of that at the end when everyone helps paint over all of the drawings on her wall. Mm -hmm. But but that one of her and Angel on the horse, like she she paints over that herself. Yeah. And so you see her healing, but also her letting go, like, Mm -hmm. you know, realizing that's not going to work out between her and Angel and, and really coming to peace with that in a way that I think they represented very well. I think so, um, too. I mean, they actually did, you know, kind of run through the experience of of dealing and processing the trauma. You know, mm-hmm. we open up with this denial, you know, um, when she's talking with her parents. First of all, she does the, the fairy tale story, which is a distance between her and the trauma. She's not facing it. Mm-hmm. And she also created another cave for herself to hide in, you know. Um, and then we have this denial. If you're here and you see me, then it's real. Then it happened. And that's the moment where she's actually kind of integrating right you know we talked yeah. a lot about that sort of integration on um on our podcast big strong yes where we talked a lot about dealing with trauma and that explosive integration that moment where you you accept and you kind of bring inside the reality of what happened to you mm-hmm. and what that does i mean that is the beginning of the path toward healing but until you do that you can't really move forward with it you know but she's accepted it and it's all real then we move right into this where she's trying to figure out how she fits into the world now you know and her world of course is angel investigations everybody has a role everybody has a part to play but she doesn't see her own because she doesn't know who she is now because she's not the same person that she was before trauma changes you it changes your brain you know, right. changes who you are. So she's trying to figure out her role and, and trying to understand who she is in this new context. And then after she comes back and saves them with her contraption that may or may not also make toast, um, <laughs> she has an understanding, you know, finally of who she is. And she says, I could go home with you and pretend that the last five years didn't happen. Uh, but the truth of it is, I'm not normal anymore. I can't pretend to be normal anymore, that that isn't part of who she is. She is fundamentally changed and then when you go into the painting over the walls like everybody's helping her you know everybody's in there they're painting over the walls they're all part of this process but she goes to the part that speaks to her which is that you know that picture of her and angel on the horse when he saved her you know um and then she chooses to paint that over and there's a difference between the denial earlier because she was still constantly revisiting that trauma you know So this isn't about denial, but this is about release. 
This yeah. is about, yes, this thing happened to me. Yes, I'm different now, but I can now let it go. I don't have to obsessively keep going back to it. And actual traumatic processing, you go through these, it's like, like you know, we've had a, our, our friend Noelle uh, has talked about this with us where she talks about it being a spiral staircase. And I, mm-hmm. I don't think she's the first one to come up with that idea, uh, but she's the one who introduced me to it, where you're going up the staircase and every time you kind of revisit that same stuff, but then you go around and you're higher up and you're further away from it the next point, and then you come back to it again. So, you know, processing trauma is a circular experience like it, it doesn't happen in this linear way you go through the stages then you go back through them again and then you go through them again you know um right. but we're seeing that whole process in one episode uh which is fine because you know you can't like revisiting it enough like is annoying enough in real life to have to do that session, <laughs> you know fine but we are going through that whole process of of working through that trauma and um and i think they did like a really great job telling that part of the story. Oh, I think they did too. And I also really appreciate the fact that she comes to this integration, this understanding that she says, I'm not normal anymore. But she doesn't do that in a way that is detrimental or negative. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's not like, oh, I'm not, I'm not normal. So therefore something is wrong with me. It's like, this is my new normal and I can mm-hmm. still find a home and friends and purpose within this because right. I'm in a place where it fits and where I can help and where I can find, you know, ways to, to tap into these new capabilities that I have. Mm-hmm. And I really appreciated that because trauma does change you, yeah. but that doesn't make you less than, mm-hmm. you know, and, right. and so it's, it's not a matter of, well, I can never go back and therefore I'm just traumatized and you know of less right. worse mm-hmm. and and I think that they did a really good like actually a surprisingly good job yeah with that yeah. idea mm-hmm. yeah because that's yeah. not an easy idea to kind of get across you know that it's not yes you are changed no you will never be a person who's not had that experience but you can be you know something you know you can have a role you can have a new existence you can find new things to see in the world and have new experiences that are just that are fine you know you Mm -hmm. don't have to be defined by the trauma but yeah it does change who you are yeah absolutely and I also appreciated Fred's parents reaction Mm -hmm. to that yeah um and that's one of the reasons the Mr. X were so damn annoying because they you know they were really willing to help her like they yeah. weren't trying to pull her back even though they've missed her and have been worried sick for five years yeah like her happiness and her being in the right place was more important to them than having their daughter back yeah and, and it and wasn't I, even their idea for her to go home right she was the one who brought that up they were not pressuring her to go home yeah and and i really like that um i, I loved how they first came into the hyperion and you know angel and team are sorting all the weapons and right. her dad says we're sorry to barge into your arsenal here but we really <laughs> need to talk to you right. like, i thought that was so cute and then we have that moment where fred's you know reconciliation with her parents is really mirrored off everyone else and you can just see that longing from Cordelia yeah. and Wesley and Gunn. Mm-hmm. And I think that that was also really well done. Yeah, because I like that too. Mm-hmm. It's not like we have a lot of good parents on Angel, you know, mm-hmm. and, and most of these, most of our team come from, you know, very broken family relationships. Well, we don't even know and, anything about Gunn's parents. Right. 
Except know, we, we know, know that... he and his sister were orphans, right? Yeah, essentially. I mean, well, whoever the, his parents were, they were not around to take care of him and his sister. So, I mean, he right. was essentially either orphaned or abandoned at one point. You know, um, Cordy's parents, we know that they were very, very rich. And then her dad had a, a misunderstanding, I guess, with the IRS. <laughs> we'll put it that way. So, I mean, her dad, for all we know, may be in jail. I mean, who the hell knows? Like, they mm-hmm. lost everything. And you never hear her talk about her parents, you know. Um, then we have this, you know, we know that Angel's dad was, it, it was not a great relationship. And, um, and then we have Wesley going through this whole thing, you know, and really like revealing a lot of himself and then getting incredibly uncomfortable with the fact that he just revealed all of that, you know, yeah. um, talking about it as though that kind of, you know, uh, verbal and emotional abuse is a universal experience, you know, cause that's all he knows, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so I thought that was really interesting too. Yeah, I, I had put a note in my notes. I was like, oh, Wesley, I know you're hurting, honey, and I'd kiss it and make it better, but I kind of think Lonnie wants to do that even more than me. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, Wes. <laughs> But this is why, I mean, you know, Fred's parents, getting back to, like, how great they are, is why the the whole mislead earlier with Lorne. And the thing is, like, I love the Lorne stuff. Me too. I love all of it. First of all, Lorne smokes. Lorne yes, smokes. Of course he does. <laughs> I love depressed, wearing his robe, drinking during the day, smoking. Like, yeah. <laughs> this is Lorne. And he's, it turns out massacres are a lot like sitting through Godfather 3, once is enough. <laughs> I also love when the parents come to Caritas to see mm-hmm. Lauren. And Lauren is like, what the hell? Like, everybody's coming here. Why is it no one ever cares about my destiny? <laughs> you know? Yeah. I'm like, yeah, Lauren, absolutely. You know, um, but then when they're talking to him and they're still trying to keep up this, you know, oh, it's monster movies that, that yeah. Angel works on, that whole thing, you know. And Lauren refuses to lie about who he is in order to make her parents comfortable. Mm-hmm. And I loved that. I thought that was it was such a tiny moment, but it was so great. Yeah, it was. And even though you can tell he's totally devastated. And and I like seeing that depressed, beaten side of him because this is like the seventh time his club has been destroyed. I know. know, And and so seeing that play out in reality for him, I think, was really important. But even with all of that, he was still willing to help Fred. Yes. You know, mm-hmm. and Caritas was closed down and so was Lauren. And I thought, well, okay, I'll leave Wesling to Lonnie to be comforted <laughs> and I'll go make Lauren feel better because damn, <laughs> poor baby. Poor baby. Yeah, poor I think that baby. Sounds like a good <laughs> <laughs> but uh, one of the other things I noticed that I absolutely loved in this episode, and I, it's probably been there forever, I just noticed it in this episode, is that there is a picture of Winston Churchill on the office wall. Oh, no, I didn't it. see that. Marking it as Wesley's space. And I just love that. You think he walks by in the morning and takes a sip of tea and nods? I think he does. I think he, takes, I think he looks at his leadership. You know, he takes inspiration for his leadership from Winston Churchill. But it's such a, it's such a fun little detail that's in the background. And uh, God only knows it may have been there forever. And I just noticed it this episode. I did I not really notice it. I'll have to go back and yeah. watch for it. No, it was, it was pretty good. All right. So, Dr. Jones, what do you got to stake in Fredless? Okay. Well, we talked about the Mr. X with okay. Fred's parents. Just yes. annoying as hell. Mm-hmm. And you know, Cordy tried to convince them that they make monster movies. And although it, 
did make me laugh when she told Angel, these are Fred's very normal parents. Very normal and parents. Angel makes monster movies. And Angel said, Fred has parents? Right. <laughs> like, that was really funny for some reason. But And I also put it in my research section, but the misdirect being tied in to Lorne. Yeah. I don't. Like, that even felt like a bigger violation of misdirect. Absolutely. And yes. it just, it really pissed me off. Yeah, well, we'll talk about that in the questions then, because it was bad. Yeah. It was just bad. Lauren would never say that. Lauren you know? would, yeah. yeah. And just that whole misdirect, the whole thing, it's like, oh, come on. Like, really? Yeah. No, that is absolutely the, the definition of a bad misdirect, because it's something that if you go back and you watch it again, knowing everything, it doesn't work. Right. You know, the misdirects, if you ever do them, have to work in all contexts for people who know everything and for people who don't. This is directly lying to your audience, which absolutely drives me crazy. But while we're staking things, let me just hand the mic over to you for the things that drive <laughs> you crazy because okay. you really hate the bug monsters. I hate the bug monsters <laughs> so much. Like, first of all, what kind of giant bug demon is this? Yeah. And then I realized, oh, it's the kind that goes splat into purple slime when Fred's mom runs over it with a bus. Sure. Like, what the hell is up with big giant bugs? Like I don't I, know what. I and, don't know. But 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 like the ultimate line of just ooh, yeah, is baby bugs in a demon head. Like that is just gross and wrong. And there are not enough stakes in the world. Well, right. Plus the fact that the baby bugs, when we see the demon head like undulating, you know, with the bugs trying to break out, right? They've yeah. all got these really long like like spear claws like the big bug that sort of you know big ugly praying mantis kind of thing right yeah but then when we see them crawl out of the head they're all just cockroaches they're flat yes, they've got they're, they're like ugh. beetles right they're just like, disgusting so they're not they were... designed at all like their parents they don't look like their parents it's just crazy on top of which there is also this so we have a giant bug demon that is going around laying eggs in people's heads. Now, granted, it was a demon that they laid the eggs in, you know, originally. But, I mean, I imagine they don't decide that it's they just lay them in Dursler demons. Like, I imagine that if they can lay them in one head, they can lay them in another. So God only knows what it's out there doing to humans. Not to mention the fact that one of these bugs is big, does a lot of damage, and had to be killed with a bus. Yeah. You know? So, like, these are dangerous animals. But because they come in and he just wants his babies, right? Mm-hmm. That's it. That's So we just let him go? Because yeah. it's a, a paternal or maternal instinct that's going on with this this bug, um, even though it is obviously a clear and present danger to humans, <laughs> which is what they're there to protect. So that whole thing felt so dumb to me. And we have this, you know, we're telling this whole story that's like that is not necessarily really about the parents. It's about the trauma. Like right. the parents are part of it, but it's not about them. And yet we have this parental story with this bug where we're like, okay, well, it's planting its eggs in living things and then making them crazy. And then they go out and hurt things and whatever. Um, but that it's coming to collect its children and that somehow. So we have like the, the whole thing, a good monster talks about whatever the thematic issue is. And the mm -hmm. thematic issue and Fredless is is dealing with trauma, but the the reference that the the demon is making is to parentage, you know, mm. um, to parental instincts or whatever. So all, it doesn't line up. It doesn't really work well, and none of it makes any sense. So, no, it doesn't. Um, and and the thing that made the least sense, like yes. you talk about taking a character and just forgetting everything you know about him. 
There is no way in hell that Gunn would have thought that demon head was paper mache. Uh, right. Like, he what knows the what actual it is? fuck? Like, come on. He, I mean, come on. I mean, yes. really? It, yeah. I, it was just dumb now, beyond the telling. When you want somebody to make a joke, you know, you you make it an easy joke. And it is an easy joke, but it doesn't fit. And it, you know, it sacrifices Gunn's character because he's smart and experienced and he knows what it is and they're not lying to the parents anymore. So whatever the hell, yeah. I don't even know yeah. what that's about. It was just um, stupid. So maybe yeah. down the street is like a supernatural extermination agency and Angel will call them to deal with all those baby bugs. I don't know. But yeah, uh, it was well, just no, like apparently so it's fine. Oh, bad. you were just laying your eggs in, in living yeah. you know, hosts. Aww. That's fine. Right. Yeah. Ugh, I don't no. know. It's totally it's bad. Nutty. It just like the demon part of this makes no sense at all. And it's incredibly stupid. Yeah. Um, we also do some things with Fred's parents that I didn't particularly care for. Of course, one of them, of course, is the misdirect, which I hated completely. Mm-hmm. Um, but we do these hick jokes, you yeah. know, um, the way her dad has a problem with Lauren wearing makeup, you know, and mm-hmm. he says, we don't get a lot of guys who wear eyeliner, not for long anyway, you know, talking about Texas. And I'm like, so men who wear eyeliner get run out on a rail? Do they get beaten up until they take the eyeliner off? Do they like, what are you suggesting there? You know, Mm -hmm. that you have absolutely no patience for anyone who's even remotely different, but yet you can deal with the fact that there are demons and vampires and all that kind of stuff. So we have this completely separate characterization so that we can, we can have that conflict with Lauren, which I love Lauren's side of that conflict where he's not pretending to be anything other than what he is and screw anybody who can't handle it, you know? But then everything else we get from uh, Fred's parents is loving and kind and supportive Mm -hmm. and accepting and all of those things. Well, but you know, I just remembered this one moment also with Fred's dad when Mm -hmm. Cordelia was trying to explain to him that Fred was different. Yeah. And he snapped at Cordelia and said, well, whose fault is that? Ugh. Yeah. And, and, you know, so like there was some of this kind of blaming other people or other women for this change in her daughter. And then, yeah, you meet a demon and your, your reaction is the eyeliner. Like, well, yeah, right. Or, you know, men who wear makeup or whatever. And it's just, it's really judgmental. And mm-hmm. that's, and the thing is, is that we, we are completely inconsistent with the way that we see and characterize her parents throughout yeah. the thing, you know? Yes. Um, and then we have this moment of Cordy's classism with uh, Mrs. Burkle, with Fred's mother. Mm-hmm. Uh, Cause Fred's mother says, you know, when she was making her rounds and Cordy presumes that she's a doctor and says, Oh, that's where Fred gets her intelligence. And then um, Mrs. Burkle says, well, I drove a bus. And suddenly we have this awkward, uncomfortable moment that's supposed to be, I think funny, but what it what it says is, Oh, you drove a bus. Well, you can't be smart then. Yeah. So I made the mistake of thinking that she got her intelligence from you. And let me tell you something. I have met incredibly smart bus drivers and incredibly stupid doctors. Me like, too. <laughs> you know, stupidity is not, you know, uh, is not something that is only for particular people in particular professions. Um, so I, I thought that that classism was a little bit um, irritating. You know, yeah. and it, and again, like those are the when we talk about all these things, like those are the implicit messages that get sent without question. Without question, doctors are smart and bus drivers are stupid. Yeah. You know? and, and, and without yeah. question, children inherit their intelligence from their parents, which is also sure. not true. 
Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So, yeah. So I didn't particularly care for that. Um, and then, you know, we have, of course, we gave Gunn a misogynistic joke right before he went to the paper mache thing where he's like, the lady makes bug soup with a 10 ton bus, but show her a paper mache head and she gets the willies. Ha! Women. Right. Ugh. And I'm like, oh, come on. Yeah. It's so yeah. dumb. Not, Not to mention, I, mean, I don't plus, think Gun, that Gunn would like, disrespect Fred's mom like that. I don't think Gunn would disrespect any woman like that. I don't think so. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think so either. And and also, like, Fred's decapitation device was great. Yeah. But maybe leaving it pointed at the front door of a hotel is not a great idea. Seems a little dangerous, considering <laughs> how much at any moment there could be like a wild fight in the right? middle of that room and somebody could knock into it and lose yeah. an arm, you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, it's 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 not good. All right. So what did you have for research mo- mode on Fredless? Okay. So it raised some questions for me about time and distance. Because I agree with Fred that the more you are aware of time, the more slowly it moves, mm-hmm. except when it moves faster. Yes. And and I realized that it's really hard to keep track of time on this show. Mm-hmm. And I wondered if time ran differently when they were in Pylea because because of Darla, we know that it's been about nine months yes. since she and Angel slept together, give or take. But it seems like either a lot more time has passed or like a lot less time has passed. Okay. A lot less time from when when he slept with Darla because yeah. that was well because then we we did this whole dark Darla you know uh, Darla and Drew eating everybody in Wolferman Heart Angel letting them having the epiphany the whole thing right yeah so we go through this whole dark storyline then we take a crazy left turn right mm-hmm. and go into the fever dream that is Pylea I mean there's some stuff in Pylea that I liked but overall it was a weird divergence from oh, yeah. everything else that was going on last season. Um and then we come back and we've got Fred and we've got Angel leaving first to mourn Buffy and then leaving to spend time with Buffy and also what's interesting too is that that time that they spent together Angel and Buffy after she comes back from the dead is referenced on both shows but we don't see any of it. The closest mm-hmm. thing we have is Cordy and Wes's reenact of their their what they imagine it would be you know um and so that's kind of interesting too but we do have this sense of you know angel is gone for a few months you know Mm -hmm. and so apparently the summer happened in real time and now it's been a few months since the beginning of the season so we're kind of moving into but yeah it does feel a little bit like time is 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 kind of malleable you know yeah it does. So it was just something that I noticed. And then yeah. I know it was part of the misdirect, but I can't figure out why Lauren told Fred she had not run far enough. Yeah, I think it's just bad writing. Yeah, it, that it's was just, just terrible. Because that, that's not... And of enough. course, yeah. if Lauren says it, I look for meaning. Well, and if Lauren says it, I expect it to be true. Right. Me you too. Know? Because he's the one with the wisdom. He's the one who knows things. You know, so when he says something, we need to be able to trust it. But he says, you haven't run far enough. Those monsters. And we're talking about her parents like they are monsters. Right. And I think that Lorne, given his his wisdom and the way that he talks about things. I mean, yes, yeah, sometimes he does speak in, you know, in riddles and things that you then have to figure out. Um, but he is actually encouraging her, whether he's talking about her parents or whether he's talking about her personal internal demons, mm-hmm. he is encouraging her to run away from it. Right. And that is not anything that Lorne would do. Now, had 
we had Lorne, you know, we show him depressed. We show him angry. We show him feeling like, you know, he's lost a lot and he's going through a traumatic experience of his own. Mm -hmm. Now, if this was a situation where he, you know, he said anything, you know, that could be possibly like where he's like, you know, ordinarily I would tell you to face your demons. Ordinarily I would tell you to just go ahead and find a way and power on through. But you know what? If you want to run, you run. You know, if he had said something like that, right, I'd be like, all right, you know, because he's just sick of being everybody's you know like what is it a wisdom vending machine yeah. right you know <laughs> yeah um, he's sick of being in that role and at that point he's like you know I tell you to do the hard thing I tell you to face it but you know what look what that did for me absolutely nothing I went back to Pylea I faced my demons and what happens my whole place gets shot up right you know like I, you know and I could see him like in that moment because he's feeling bad making it about him and reading her situation through his lens I could see that happening but I think we would have had to work with that material a little bit more and they just didn't so really there's no reason for it except bad writing yeah and or if he was just shut down to the point that he was like yeah you know what uh why don't you come in here and help me instead of the other way around like I can't read today I'm not Mm -hmm. I'm not able to do that right now um then I would have totally bought that but yeah that was just really really bad it just no, but me. we set her parents up as monsters, and then we suddenly decide that's not the case anymore. Do a complete one eighty, and they are entirely from that turn in the bus station. They are entirely different people from there, right? Yeah. And nothing is consistent. Yeah. So yeah, overall, it just there was there was a lot of stuff in this episode that was that was not great. Mm-hmm. Yep. But the good stuff was good, and I will always love Cordy and Wesley acting out Buffy and Angel yes. because it was yes. fantastic. That was really fun. And and the treatment of Fred's trauma, yes. I thought, was really fun. Yeah. But now I'm going to brood. Okay. While Fredless has its high points, it's also got some serious lows. Aside from settling Fred's trauma with a touching emotional arc, it doesn't do much that moves forward the overall story of this season, so we deemed it a skipper. But for anyone who suffered trauma, however, it can be a good episode to help walk through the process with Fred, which is honestly one of the best uses of fiction. So if you can handle bug demons and bad misleads, it can be worth the watch. All right. So now we're done with Fredless. We're going to move on into Billy. One of the show's darkest episodes, Billy brings us back to the young man that Angel saved from the demon prison dimension. Billy isn't fully human, and he has the power to infect any man he touches with a deep, violent hatred for women. At Wolfram and Hart, he infects Gavin, who severely beats Lila. Angel goes to Billy's mansion and is able to enter without an invitation, but the police interrupt before Angel can attack. Angel thinks the police are there because he broke in, but they're actually there to arrest Billy, who is up to his old tricks of causing murders. They leave with Billy, but his power causes a wreck when one of the male officers attacks his female colleague in the car. Wesley and Angel investigate and take a blood sample, which infects Wesley. Cordelia takes a crossbow and goes after Billy. She's going to take him down. But first, she goes to Lila, who's at home, beaten and shaken, and convinces Lila to help. Cordy tracks Billy down at the airport, and Angel meets up with her there. But meanwhile, an infected Wesley terrorizes Fred, attacks, and tries to kill her. Fred hides and tries to survive and is relieved when Gunn shows up to help her until Gunn realizes that he has also been infected with Billy's blood. Gunn tells Fred to knock him out, and she does. And then she also manages to knock out Wesley before he can kill her. 
Billy tries to infect Angel, but Angel is immune, and while they fight, Lila shows up, shoots Billy, nods at Angel and Cordelia when he dies, and then walks away. After Billy's death, Angel continues to teach Cordelia how to fight, and Fred goes to Wesley, who is devastated by his behavior under Billy's influence, to tell him to come back to work, and we end this episode with the sounds of Wesley sobbing. Billy aired on October 29th, 2001. It was directed by David Grossman and written by Tim Minear and Jeffrey Bell. Um, so, Kelly, this is a really dark episode. There's a lot of stuff going on in this episode. Um, on the perfect happiness scale, where did it land for you? So it was really hard to figure this out. But in the end, I gave it a perfect six because mm-hmm. this episode shakes me more than any other on Angel. It is so dark and so hard to watch, and so devastating. And it mirrors some of my own trauma so clearly that it gives me cold chills and makes me feel not a little bit of panic. But it is nearly a perfect episode. The The storytelling is incredible, and it's definitely one of the top 10 most memorable episodes of Angel. So it's not delight that makes this a six, but I think it's a deep appreciation, both for the pain that is so real here and for the hope and heroism that helps heal that pain. Yeah, absolutely. I'm with you. I mean, this is definitely a six. It is not a delight to watch. Mm-hmm. Um, but when you look at just the skill in the storytelling and the thematic work, I mean, it is unbelievable. Billy is a truly, truly disturbing episode. And following an episode that dealt with the healing of trauma, it might be triggering for anyone who's experienced abuse, especially at the hands of someone who has claimed to love them. But the way Billy tells the story of that kind of misogynistic darkness is incredibly powerful. Powerful if you can handle watching it. It's got a solid narrative with a monster that represents something human. That's always a good thing. And one that understands its subject and theme as strongly as this episode does is a rare thing. This is one of the all-time best episodes of Angel. And while I understand why some people might not be able to watch and enjoy it, it is still masterfully done. Yeah. So um, let's go ahead and move into our moments of perfect happiness, although it is so it's so hard to define this as happiness. <laughs> yes. Well, and you know, I had to start yeah. this discussion trying to define my terms. Oh, right. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> because like rating this episode on our perfect happiness scale was really hard. Yeah. And it really made me question my love for dark stories because mm-hmm. Billy is a darkly compelling episode of Angel and the actor's performances are just incredible, mm-hmm. but it doesn't make me laugh or light up my romantic heart or engage my brain with all kind of questions. It chills me and shakes me and makes me flinch, but I still consider it an excellent episode like dark and twisted Mm -hmm. and scary and painful and hard to watch but still damn good storytelling yeah it is and I don't have a word for that kind of dark story delight because it's not happiness right Right. and I've been thinking about this a lot because it's not pleasure derived from pain I don't Mm -hmm. enjoy seeing anyone hurt or scared or traumatized But right after watching Billy, (laughs) um, I spent the weekend watching The Fall with Noelle because she's really sick and she's feeling terrible. So we we watched a show together to distract her. And The Fall, which stars Gillian Anderson as a detective and Jamie Dornan as a serial killer, is probably the darkest show I've ever watched. Mm -hmm. And saying, oh, I love this show doesn't feel quite right. 
but I have a deep appreciation for it. And so I don't have a term <laughs> to define. Yeah. Like, it drives me crazy. I'm like, what do you call <laughs> this right. kind of, of dark story appreciation? But whatever that word is, is what I feel for Billy, too. Yeah, I mean, I think appreciation is actually a really good term, although I, I do feel like there is something there, mm-hmm. you know, and it isn't delight, but but it is something that is, um, that, that, I don't know, it, it touches a part of experience that I think is powerful and important. Mm-hmm. And when a story like that is told really well, you know, it's, I, I don't know, I don't have a term for it either, but it is, it is, it is like the, the dark opposite oppositional to delight but it's still like a good I don't know good feeling is also bad right um but you know dark stories appeal to us because we all have some measure I think of darkness within us Mm -hmm. you know and that darkness is often brought about by trauma abuse uh sometimes just by something going chemically wrong in the brain um but the need for us to deal with human darkness you know in ourselves and others we love and in others we hate I think is one of the most essential needs of human understanding you know mm-hmm. and um I, I have always been a person who did not care for dark stories i never wanted to look at darkness i ran from it you know um then i experienced enough trauma and abuse that it changed me you know and yeah. now i find that i need them there is a satisfaction um in in dealing with dark stories and I, I still don't like horror like blood and gore have absolutely no appeal for me i spent the last week like catching up on all of game of thrones and after a while i was like oh jesus christ just, you know, if i see somebody else like you know the sword through their eye hole or whatever whatever i don't care um but stories that really touch on like the darkness in the human soul, I feel like I can relate to them better mm-hmm. now. I understand them better now. And I find myself drawn to them more and more. And again, it's, it's not an enjoyment, I think, but something of a processing. It's, it's, it's an appreciation of the truth telling. Yes. You know, that yes. we're, we're facing something that is very real and that we don't like to face that much. And Wesley at the end um, facing his own darkness. I don't know what kind of man I am anymore. Yeah. You know, I think can be a common feeling when you experience that darkness. Um, and, and when we address that darkness in ourselves and others, you know, um, and I was really taken by Fred's, you're a good man reassurance, you know, which is the kind of thing that we tell ourselves and others when we don't want to face that darkness or we can't. The fact is that Wesley may not be entirely a good man in the way that angel isn't entirely a good man Mm -hmm. angel has integrated with his darkness he doesn't pretend it's not there he knows it's there he deals with it all the time and that is i think something that we try to avoid and fred saying you're a good man you know i mean I, i think that wesley is but not because it's not a denial of the darkness. Right. It is an acceptance of the darkness and saying, yes, I have this darkness, but that is not mutually exclusive with being a good man. Right. You know, that this spoke to something in him. Now, this idea that that misogyny can touch any man, mm-hmm. you know, um, that kind of hatred, that specific brand of hatred um, that every man has it in him, I think is a flat you know, um, kind of paintbrush, you know, to use for yeah. all men. Um, but, but it is something that, you know, Wesley responded to. It's something that Gunn responded to. Um, and I think that that comes from our tendency to deny our darkness yeah. and to pretend that it's not there rather than actually face it. Angel was the only one who faced it. He was the one who had that immunity to it. 
I think, although the reason they gave in the end wasn't that, but that's what I saw in it. Um, But anyway, that's ahead. That's for research and discussion (laughs) and deep thoughts. Um, What do you have uh, that also delighted you in this episode? Did anything delight you? It did. (laughs) Did it make you happy in this episode? So Cordelia Mm -hmm. and Angel sparring. Yes. Delights me. Mm-hmm. And her determination, you know, she's like, I need to learn how to fight. Mm-hmm. And she realizes Angel may be the guy she has to fight. Yes. And and mm-hmm. she is so focused. She takes it so seriously. I love that she pulls a cheerleading routine and then kicks his yeah. ass. And yeah. I love those scenes with Cordelia and Angel sparring. They are some of my favorite moments on the show. I love it too. I think it's really great. And I love him training her to fight. I mm-hmm. love her say, you know, the men folk aren't always around to protect the women folk. Um, but you know, even this opening with him training her, which is showing her being so empowered, he is kind of being, you know, like he's overly protective. He's like, you don't think that I'll be there to rescue you. Um, and she's like, I don't want you to have to rescue me. And then he shows her the move and she says, nope, I did three years on varsity cheerleading and never had to be shown a move more than once. And instead of respecting that and being like, wow, that's pretty cool. He says, this isn't like waving a pom-pom. And I was like, screw you, Angel. (laughs) Like that is such a dismissive way to talk about cheerleading which is like an athletic activity i mean these are dancers they're doing coordinated things Mm -hmm. you know and there's a lot in the movement and the way that he trains her that has this this like body movement coordination tai chi kind of thing to it which is not unrelated to dancing and routines oh yeah yeah and i would think that he would be able to see that and i know that what we're doing is we're you know we're doing it and we also do the book ending yes you know where we've got them training again at the end um but the way that he dismisses her experience is you know highly misogynistic and also kind of like a a flip coin of this internalized sexism that women need men to protect them yeah you know and And that is not the case women need to be able to protect themselves right and I think that's one of the reasons I love the book in so much because yeah we see her grimly determined in both scenes Mm -hmm. he's very reluctant at the beginning you know and he's still treating her like this this almost like this little girl but when, yeah. when they come back to it at the end, after they've been through what they've been through with Billy, he is training her for real. Yeah. And I like that shift. Um, no, it is. It's really and good. And there is one one part of it that I saved for stake this because it was just that bad. But <laughs> but the, the continuation of, of him training her and them sparring and Cordelia choosing to become this fighter. Yes. I just love. I love it. Yeah. No, I like it. She's taking control of her experience. Mm-hmm. She is not happy to just be a damn damsel. Right. You know, every episode. And I really like that. Um, but we also have this moment a little bit later where we see that same sexism in Angel, that protective sexism, mm-hmm. right? Where uh, when they're looking at the photos of the crime scene and he takes the photos like away from Cordy, he doesn't want her to see it, you know? And I mean, yes, it's a protective sexism, but it's still that. And then when she's like, yeah, tell that to the power. They already ran the THX version in my head, remember? I mean, Cordy has had this experience much worse than any of these pictures, you know, are going to do for her. She lived that experience while she was having the vision. Um, And the the powers are not protecting Cordy, you know, and maybe Cordy doesn't need your protection, you know? And I I think he's trying to stop her from feeling guilty, even though they both know it's not her fault. It's not even Angel's fault. This is solely on Lila. And Wolfram and right. Hart. 
But I did still, and maybe it's just the romantic in me, when Cordelia said, you know, you did this for me. You did this to save me. And Angel said, and I'd do it again. Yeah. I still fall for that. <laughs> still That's a, it's like a really it. nice moment. And the thing is that, that, that it's right. You know, yeah. like he's right. And he even says, whatever's happening now, you're not responsible for this and neither am I. Yes. And that is the absolute truth. And it's about time somebody said it. Yes. It is Lila's responsibility. It is Wolfram and Hart's responsibility. Angel not saving Cordy was not an option. He was going to save her. And now they're dealing with whatever it is, but it is not his fault and it is not her fault. Right. And putting that responsibility in the correct place. I really like that they did that in this episode because this misplaced sense of guilt is something, it's like a shorthand that we use in storytelling to show us how good somebody is. Right. We know how good they are by how guilty they feel. And that is bullshit. Yes. You know, feeling guilty for things that are not your responsibility, that are not your fault, that is just that's societal nonsense. There's yes. no need for that. You Absolutely. Know? And it does not illustrate how good somebody is by how guilty they feel. Yeah. Right. Um, so I was really, really glad to see that that responsibility was placed in the right place and that we saw Lila actually living the consequences of that responsibility. Oh, yes. Which brings us to my next section of perfect happiness, mm -hmm. because yes. in an episode about truly evil misogyny, we see nothing but courage and badassery and heroism from all the women. I love that. It was so great. And and I love, you know, we Lila is in her element. You know, she yes. she she went and got Billy again and returned him to his family and she's in her, you know, standing up to Gavin. She's like, "Oh, by the way, get out." And right. <laughs> and I laughed. And then Gavin just beat the holy shit out of her and I was like, "Oh yeah. my god." Like Gavin just goes crazy on and her. And while saying all these misogynistic things that every woman has heard to one level or another oh, yeah. at one point or another. Yeah. Someone has said this to every woman I know, and I know it's been in my experience. Yeah, absolutely. And then when Angel goes to Lila's house, yeah. you know, and he kicks in the door and he's trying to intimidate her, and, and then he sees her face, and yeah. his face, you know, he just reacts to that. And Lila, being Lila... Is like I'm fine. You should see the other guy. Like I, I, <laughs> like she's. I love her. She is so incredibly tough. But I do. I love the face, his expression when he sees this. Now, I mean, this is a guy who at various times has wanted to beat hell out of Lila, like <laughs> right. that, you know. But he has this empathy, mm -hmm. you know. And then when he starts saying, "Yeah, I'm going to find this person. I'm going to stop it," you know, I'm going to like make sure. And she says, "I'm sorry, but this deep chivalric concern coming from the only man I know who definitely wants to kill me is a bit much on a day like this." And I like that she puts that back on him. Yeah, I you know, too. she's like, "You have wanted to kill me on a number of occasions." Yeah, you know, yeah. like you have threatened me on a number of occasions. So please don't pretend like you're so upset that this happened to me. Like, take your chivalry and your sexism somewhere else. I'm not interested. And right. I actually really liked that from Lila. I did too, especially knowing their last interaction was them yeah. kissing and him biting her. Right. And she was like, "Don't pretend to care about me now. Like, don't. Yeah, I don't want that exactly. from you." And and I loved that, but. I, and and it was really funny in this episode seeing mm -hmm. Angel do something and then Cordy come and do it better. Yeah. That just yes. spoke to me because then Cordy comes to Lila's apartment and mm -hmm. walks the hell in and is like, I'm not a vampire. I don't need an invitation, bitch. It exactly. was so great. It was so great. You know, and, and her speech 
mm-hmm. to Lila about, oh, yeah. you know, no woman should ever feel like this. And now that you yeah. know this, you have to help. Um, and, you know, they're talking about Angel and Lila says, yeah, I know I've seen his dark side. And Cordelia says, no, you really haven't. Yeah. And and I love that. I just love it. I love her telling Lila, no woman strong enough to wear the mantle of vicious bitch should ever put up with this. Yes. And I was like, all right, toe to toe, Lila versus Cordelia. The winner is Cordy. Well, yeah. And they did that lovely reflection, too, mm-hmm. where Cordy was like, oh, please, I know you. I was you. Yeah. You know? Um, and I don't think that that's true. I don't either. But I think that there is something. There is a shared DNA with Cordy and with Lila. Mm-hmm. You know? I mean, they're both strong. They're both incredibly strong. You know? And they're not going to take shit from anybody. And um, and I really like that we have that reflection. And then when they start talking about the shoes and the yeah. fashion and all that <laughs> stuff, like it's it's nice because it's they're connecting on a level that they both have a shared experience and sort of something that's shared in their personality. Now, Cordy, of course, fights on the side of good and Lila does it for evil, but they're both fighters. Right. Right. Absolutely. You know? And and they were evenly matched. Yes. And and mm-hmm. I just I mean, I think this is probably the most outstanding Cordy we've seen. This is yes. just such perfect Cordelia. And mm-hmm. her tasering Billy in the balls might be my favorite Cordy <laughs> moment ever. Um I mean, maybe tied with, with her beating Lila in the verbal sparring. In the verbal sparring, you know. yes, absolutely. But I deeply respect her going after Billy and I love that it's not too stupid to live girl. Like yes. she has a plan. She understands mm-hmm. the line she's going to have to cross to kill him. Right. She has the capability to do it. And she is capable of executing the plan that she has put in place. You know, she's mm-hmm. not damseling herself. She's not putting herself in danger by being reckless. Like she knows she can take this guy out and she's going to do mm-hmm. it. And she's absolutely going to do it. And I love what she's like, no ass wipe. I'm here to send you back. Yes. <laughs> And he's like, do you feel superior? You know, she's like, actually, I'm feeling superior because of an arrow pointed at your jugular. And the irony of using a phallic-shaped weapon, not lost on me. Yeah, you know? it was great. So, uh, yeah, no, I, I, I like that a lot. And I think it's a really, really good Cordy. And it's not a stupid, you know, like, too stupid to live plan. Right. She's got a taser. She's got the crossbow. She knows that that apparently whatever he inspires in people is is directly male on female misogyny. So she is going to be immune to whatever it is that, you know, he might put the whammy on her mm-hmm. in some level. Um, although we certainly know that that misogyny is not something that only men engage in. Women engage in misogyny all the time. But that's an entirely different discussion from what we are doing specifically in this episode. Yes. You know? Yes. Um, so, yeah, all of it, I thought, was just fantastic. And then, you know, Angel's fighting him and Cordy's there and Cordy's ready to shoot. And then Lila walks in and without a word, yep. just bang, 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 gives him a nod, walks away. Yeah. It was <laughs> so that. fantastic. And I loved I love that she didn't speak like yeah. she's not, oh, I'm a good guy now or, oh, Cordelia, you were right. She decided she had to do this thing. She came yeah. and did it. She went right back to being Lila. And and I loved Angel pretending to fall for it. Right. Like he truly, you know, tricked Billy and was able to 
Yeah, you so know. they could get him. And it wasn't so they could mislead the audience, although, of course, that was part of it. We were worried. Right. He was deliberately doing that right. so that Billy would relax, thinking he'd already won. Yeah. And then when he got Billy off, you know, off his game and caught him by surprise. So that was about surprising Billy. And that is an example of a misdirect done well. Yes. Because if you look <laughs> back at it again, knowing how everything turns out, you know exactly why Angel is doing that. Yeah. And, and I also thought it was a good example of stretching a character without breaking the character right like having Mm -hmm. lila show up and kill billy i thought perfectly fit i believed it and i did not i did not think oh well she's good now um right and i well she has that line earlier about i'm not Lindsay mcdonald i don't switch sides when it gets tough exactly she's not switching sides she is being absolutely true to lila yeah which i thought was so great but i read Mm -hmm. a interview with stephanie romanoff that i thought was really great uh, where she said the ending of Billy was her favorite Lila moment because mm-hmm. it was the only time Lila was a hero. Yeah. And that's included on the Angel DVD set. And it was cited by Nikki Stafford in her book, Once Bitten, an unofficial guide to the world of Angel. All um, right. But I was like, I'm giving Lila all the points. Like, I just yes. <laughs> loved her. And then I gave Fred all the points for knocking Wesley out. Because yes. she managed to rig up this thing and, and take him down. And, and I liked her telling him, yes, you remembered that I would hide in the dark, but you forgot yeah. that I also like to build things. I know. And then she just takes him down. It was great. Yeah. Fred's really good in this episode. And while Cordy and Lila are kind of the, the badass bitches that we really enjoy kind of seeing them claim their strength, we also see that with Fred. Now, Fred is somewhat damseled, mm-hmm. you know, and she's screaming and afraid and running and she's you know she can't really fight back with wesley so the best she can do is hide and then gun comes in and saves her yeah right you know gun comes in he rescues her he brings her to a room they start blockading it and all this and then um gun starts to turn on her and he's like you have to hit me you have to knock me out you know and she does it and then when she does, she is actually, you know, the, her own rescuer. She builds this contraption. She sets Wesley up, you know, so that when he breaks in, he'll fall, he'll get hit, he'll fall through the floor and he'll be knocked out, yeah. you know. And, um, and I think that that is really great for Fred because we have, you know, sort of presented her as this helpless manic pixie dream girl. And that is not at all the case. Yes. She's also really, really tough. And I really liked Gunn. Like when he realized what was happening, he was able yeah. to fight it off long enough and he didn't say, okay, let me try to figure this out. Let me try. He said, yeah. you have to take me out. And like, yes. he didn't worry about what that was going to do to him. He didn't worry about getting hurt. Like right. he said, you have to knock me unconscious, do it. And, yeah. and I really liked that moment for him. I thought that that was, yeah. and at first I thought, okay, well, we're seeing Gunn's real character here, right? Because mm-hmm. he's been exposed to this. He's still able to hold on. He's still able to think of, thre- of Fred, but I don't like that interpretation either because mm-hmm. if you compare that to Wesley, then Gunn is really a good guy and Wesley's really a monster. And I right. don't think it's that simple. Um, I don't think so. Either. You know, and I think that Wesley has some deeper trauma that is related to this that Gunn doesn't mm-hmm. have. And mm-hmm. so I don't think this was necessarily triggering, like, the evil guy that sits inside of every guy. Right. So much mm-hmm. as it's rooting around in there for something to latch onto, And there was yes. a lot more trauma already in Wesley than there was in Gunn. Well, it also wasn't immediate for Wesley either. 
And I think Wesley. Oh, actually, wasn't I as think it. Conscious. I think it was because really? yeah, because they had they were already looking at the slides. Yes, he but notice Fred didn't speak, and mm-hmm. this is triggered by a woman talking. And so, nice. like, he's like, "Will you hand me a?" And she art she just has it ready to hand to him. Mm-hmm. And so, like, it. I think that it was. I think it was immediate for him, but it wasn't triggered until she spoke. Okay. Whereas she was talking with Gun, and it, it Gun fought it off longer. Like if you right. like, I went mm-hmm. back and watched it, and she is silent for a while. And I think it's the idea of a woman speaking, right? Like, that's what the vic- the male people said later. They were like, I had yeah. to shut her up. Right. And it wasn't until Fred started talking that Wesley turned the way he turned. But God, that's really interesting. Right? And then what made it really scary for me was that his first instinct wasn't to hit. His first instinct was to control and yeah. to be like this total dominating force around her. Yeah. And and to, like, make her understand all of his anger, whereas most of the other men that we saw just lashed out with violence. Right. So it was so much worse in Wesley's case on every level. And it was. It really was. Yeah, it was. It was just so hard to see him like that. Yeah, well, which brings us to Dark Wesley, right? Which is always the thing that I love. Mm-hmm. I love Dark Wesley. Yeah. Right? But this Wesley, this darkness... You know, is something that um, that really like everything he does. He um, he tells her that you know, grown men have you're waving it in my face. Mm-hmm. Do you want me to take it? Do you, I mean he's threatening to rape her? Like there is a lot of darkness that goes beyond that. Just shut up. I can't hear your voice. Stop talking. Exactly. You know, like it. It was. You know, you're you're taunting me. You know, you have to understand that that when you know, if I rape you, if I attack you, that it's your fault, mm-hmm. right? Which is a, a message that women get sent constantly. Yeah. You know, he goes through this whole thing. Grown men are wired a certain way. When our backs are turned, you laugh at us. Which also brings to mind the Margaret Atwood quote: "Men are afraid that women will laugh at them. Women are afraid that men will kill them." Yep. You know, um, and that these are the things that 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 separate that very specifically male experience from a very specifically female experience, because we are, you know, exposed to this kind of misogyny where if we express ourselves, if we talk, if we have agency, if we make a decision, you know, um, that can be something that creates a violent situation, Mm -hmm. you know, because we're taking control of anything. And then that becomes a problem. Um, You know, he references menstruation, right? You know, he's talking about the blood. And then that brings to mind the old joke, never trust anything that bleeds for a week every month and doesn't die, right? Um, All of these things, he's talking about, it goes all the way back to Eve, you and the serpent plotting behind our backs, you know? Yes, misogyny does go all the way back to that story, Mm -hmm. right? And that story, that Bible story has been used a million times to justify male violence toward women, male control of women, blaming women, you know, like if you get raped, what were you wearing? Uh, Girls, you know, have to, the the dress codes in schools are overwhelmingly uh, applicable to girls, right? right? Don't show a bra strap, don't show any skin on your shoulders, Mm -hmm. right? Because men can't control themselves, you know? why do you make me do this? You know, the twisting of the narrative to make everything her fault just for being a woman. And I have all of this, you know, in the perfect happiness section, um, because while it is terrible, it is truly terrible. And it's a horrible, horrible experience. This is true. Right. 
you know? And I think that maybe that's what, when we get back to that appreciation, Mm -hmm. you know, to that, like, is this perfect happiness? What is this? That it is that there is kind of a solace in honesty, you know, in, in something that tells you what the truth is rather than denying what the truth is. And, and I think a lot of times, at least in my experience, like, you know, my, my way of dealing with darkness has been to deny it. Mm -hmm. I don't acknowledge it. And I don't, I haven't allowed it, you know, within like me, I haven't acknowledged any darkness that I might have, you know? Um, And, and something about this tells the truth of it. You know, and it tells the truth of the experience. Like I have experienced, you know, maybe not that viciously, mm-hmm. but all of those things, all of those moments that that Wesley just runs through them. I've had that experience, and most women, I think, especially in our culture, have also had that experience. And something about the truth being told, light being shown on that, yeah. I think, is where the whatever it is—not delight, not happiness satisfaction something Mm -hmm. it comes from this story I think you're right because when you said that earlier that you said this is truth telling I felt that click in in my brain that said yes that's that is what this is for me because some of this um like especially when Wesley said lie to me again and we're gonna have a problem right and he was looking for lies in her words like looking to start that kind of fight or like seeking that out intentionally. I know what that is. Like, I I mean, I have those exact words and Mm -hmm. I was raised in that. I've had a relationship that worked that way. And there is something about seeing it in story to say, and Noelle and I actually talk about this a lot um, because Mm -hmm. she constantly uh, encourages me to write like this memoir. And I'm like, nobody's going to, believe this shit if that's actually like the working <laughs> title right y'all ain't gonna believe this right. shit because it feels so out of the ordinary or out of the normal experience and anytime yeah. you try to write about something traumatic it just feels awful anyway and mm-hmm. and we're like okay so if someone wrote this out we would be like oh there's no way that's so over the top that would never happen unless it has happened to you right. and then when you see that kind of truth there is something about that that is it's not love and delight, but it's it's the equivalent of this is real and I know this is real and maybe it's a validation of experience. I was just thinking yeah. that the validation might be, yeah. you know, because I could have written this. I could have written yeah. that scene. I could have written that dialogue. Um, I mean, not from the standpoint of being skilled, but from the standpoint of I know that that is real. You know that experience. Yeah. yeah. And so I, I think you're absolutely right about that. And and I'm actually really glad that we had that discussion because it's something I've tried to figure out for a long time. Mm-hmm. Because some of the stories that I am most drawn to are deeply, deeply dark. And I always right. thought that that meant there was something wrong with me. But I, I really think that this is it. I think that it is an appreciation for truth telling, which I absolutely mm-hmm. have. And yeah. and it's not something you come across very often that is done no, this people well. Don't want to talk right. about it. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Except that we do have so much darkness in our stories. Like people do. They desperately want to talk about mm-hmm. it. But they can't talk about it in reference to themselves and their lives and their personal experience because it's too hard. And this is one of the great roles of fiction that it allows us to visit that stuff without having to actually 
live it because living it is so hard. And I think that there is something in that validation. There is something in, in the acknowledgement mm-hmm. and the being seen. Yeah. Right. Because that's the thing that I think when you have to pretend like it doesn't happen, when you have to pretend like that's not part of your experience, that is an invalidation of self and of truth. And so being able to interact with a story that represents that darkness as well as this one does, it's not a joy, but it is something. Yeah, Yeah, I think it is. I think it's the truth telling of it. I think that that's incredibly valid and valuable. So, yeah, yeah, absolutely. So did you have other moments of perfect happiness that we're not calling happiness? (laughs) No, perfect. Well, no, I was actually, I I really enjoyed the moment where Cordy at at Wesley's house, you know, in the beginning um, sees that he likes Fred and that maybe the next time you invite everybody over for, you invite her over for an intimate dinner for two, you don't invite everybody else as well. And, um, and he's talking about training her, you know, in the way that, that Angel is training Cordelia and all of that stuff. And like having her share his space of the research and the, the work and the analysis and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and so like, I love God. It's so innocent. He can't even tell her how he feels about her. Yeah. And then to be used in this way to hurt her. Um, that is completely devastating. She goes to his house, mm-hmm. you know, and she is not afraid of him. She goes alone. She's showing him that she's not afraid of him. He can't even look at her. And he's, you know, I don't know what kind of man I am anymore. Like how this shakes Wesley down to his core mm-hmm. to, to wonder about what kind of person he is, that he could ever do this, that he wasn't able to fight it off, you know? And when she says, well, I do, you're a good man. Like that's flat. That doesn't mean anything. Right. You know, you can't deny somebody's lived experience and help them at all like you have to go into the dark with them and she's refusing to do that so while it seems like such a nice thing for her to say such a wonderful thing for her to say you know I still trust you I'm not afraid of you I'm here by myself Mm -hmm. you know um it it denies his experience and then when she shuts the door and he's weeping on the other I mean my god that kills me every single time because that is you know, that acknowledgement of, of whatever it is that you have within you that allows you to do things like that, yeah. you know, um, the look on his face when he said, I'm so sorry, right before oh he started god. crying. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. It is that is so powerful. And my God, I absolutely like that gets me every time. And I love it. And I think that Alexis Denisov did such a great job with all of this, which must have been very, very hard. Oh, yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, Absolutely. And and I I had a different reaction to Fred going there, which I put in research mode. But Mm -hmm. I think there's a huge difference between no, you're a good man, and we're just going to pretend like this never happened. And I forgive you, or I trust you, um, Mm -hmm. which is an acknowledgement of that. You know, and I think that there would have been a big difference between between those words from, you know, I think so, too. Yeah. I think so too. Um, and then I had a couple of like happy things that weren't quite so heavy mm-hmm. um, in there, and uh, and and they weren't you know like 
set up ha 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 laugh kind of things. But yeah. um, but I I was really tickled for a second at the beginning with Lila before Gavin went crazy, thinking yeah. job I never ever want being Lila Morgan's assistant. Like oh god, seriously. <laughs> Oh, my God. And then, like, I know we've talked a lot about the different actors, the different characters. Um, Sometimes, like, if you have this kind of dark story, it takes Mm -hmm. a very special kind of villain to pull it off. And the actor who played Billy, I think, did an incredible job with that. And Billy's smile is one of the creepiest things we ever see on this show. Yeah. Yeah, he's he's you know, you look at him and he looks like this, you know, flatly classically good-looking guy, you know, like just every frat boy, you know, that kind of guy. Um and and yet like you can see there's real malevolence there. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, I wasn't quite as convinced by that actor, mm-hmm. I think. Um but but there was that moment when he did that evil smile. Yeah. Like there were some moments where he really managed to pull it off. And I was I was not certain about him, you know, at various points throughout. But there there are some moments where he is really, really yeah. good. And it role. was just that smile. And it was like, mm-hmm. OK. Um, yeah. <laughs> and, and then I loved yeah. when Angel went looking for Billy and he was talking to his cousin mm-hmm. and his cousin was like, are you a friend of his? And Angel said, to be honest, I'm looking to kill the bastard. Because it was like, <laughs> and that's when he unlocks the door. He's come like, on yep. in. <laughs> come on but in. But it's one more moment of total honesty. And mm-hmm. I just, I yeah. like that we get so much of that um, in this episode. So, yeah. But no, I think that was really yeah. good too. But then mm-hmm. I had things to stake and yes. I started with the silly because mm-hmm. obviously, oh my God, like I don't even know how to stake the hard things in this. But yeah. at the very beginning, I love, love, love watching Cordy and, and Angel sword fight. But mm-hmm. the don't stiffen up, yeah, you neither line oh, needs to be staked about, I don't know, 37 times. Like, okay, ugh. you know what? I didn't even, like, clearly that is a, you know, an erection reference. Yeah. Clearly, I've watched this episode, I don't know how many times, I've never, I don't think I've ever picked up on that. Oh, oh my God. I was like, <laughs> but it's so clear. I was like, like come how, how on, really? Like, really? <laughs> You're absolutely right. <laughs> but yes. the thing that bothered me worse than that was, from an instructional perspective, <laughs> like, I, I can't, when you go I can't off on stand that it, right? I love So it, if yes. you're teaching somebody a new skill, you use mm-hmm. verbs that describe the desired action, not negatively mm-hmm. phrased verbs that signal the opposite, because the brain pays attention to verbs. And if you put a don't or a not in front of it, the yeah. brain still mm-hmm. goes toward the verb. So there's mm-hmm. a huge difference between relax your muscles and don't mm-hmm. stiffen up, which immediately right. will make many people do the opposite and go tense exactly. or, you know, yes. react in other ways. Mm-hmm. And and so, like, telling Cordy, relax your arm, relax your grip, would yeah. have been positively phrased instruction that the brain and body can follow. So bad writing right. in search of a joke was bad enough. Bad writing on top of bad pedagogy irritated the shit out of me. <laughs> <laughs> I love so, like, that. I love when you go off. Yeah, on the I mean, I know we have misogyny and violence and uh, terror and all of that shit, but this was bad but teaching. This is bad teaching. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> all right. So, what else did you have to say? So, I was really thinking about like this implied, accepted male hatred of the female, right? 
Yes. And mm-hmm. and of all the stuff that was triggering for me was the cop who said, I'll tell yeah. you what my problem is. I've got a woman here who don't listen. And yeah. I was like, hello, childhood trauma. Like, <laughs> this oh. was so, yeah. so real and so close to home and almost mm-hmm. played for camp. But yeah. it's not camp because. No, it's, it's real. It's, That's a real experience. Yeah, it was so real. And. The way, you know, Wesley turned on Fred just, I mean, it literally made my stomach hurt. And, like, I can't mm-hmm. stand seeing Wesley like that. And I also really struggled watching Fred shrink down um, because yeah. she instinctively turned into that anger and was trying to soothe him. Like, she didn't know what was going on. Right. But she knew she needed to be afraid and she knew she needed mm-hmm. to, to make him happy. And that yeah. is just too freaking real. Um, yeah. And Wesley's line about it going all the way back to Eve. And I was like, yeah, okay. Have I mentioned how much I hate this? Like, I can't. <laughs> yeah, you know what? I mean, honestly, it is it is terrible. But all of that stuff I would put in the in the a perfect not happiness thing. Mm-hmm. But like, you know what I'm I know. saying? Like the, the appreciation. And the idea that misogyny is contagious. Yeah. That it is learned. That this is something we deliberately teach men culturally. Absolutely is true. Yes. And I put that in jokes? research mode. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, because I think that that's really interesting. But like, you know, the jokes, like, you know, what do you tell a woman with two black eyes? Nothing you haven't already told her twice. Yeah. You know, don't trust anything that bleeds for a week and doesn't die, which wasn't in this episode, but is another example of the kind of misogynistic jokes that are are told to kind of um, hold up this worldview. Mm-hmm. You know, um, this this men are threatened by women and when they're threatened by women, they turn to this. Right. You know, and women know when they need to be afraid. Oh, yeah. Like, you know, you feel it instinctively, you know, when you need to be afraid. And sometimes we ignore that feeling because we think we're just being overly sensitive or because, I mean, let's face it, misogyny is learned by everybody, not just men. Women learn that internal. Yes, I just need to shut up. No, I'm saying too much. We apologize for everything. Mm -hmm. And women are culturally primed to apologize constantly. Like that is learned. That is generational trauma. We are taught you know, to not take up too much space, to not speak too much, to not have too much agency, mm-hmm. um, you know, to play in the shadows however we can, because if we are upfront about things, you know, we're going to get the hell beat out of us. Like, there are a lot of things in this episode that are very true and very real and need to be looked at directly. And so while it is in this stake, this, because of course we all hate misogyny, right. you know, um, it's, it's very real. It's very true. And I think this episode speaks to it in a way that is, is chillingly accurate. Yeah, I think so too. And all right. So bring us into research mode. Okay. So we'll start with an easy question. Billy's not okay. quite human, but he's more human than angel. So what the hell is he? What the what hell the is hell he? We is never he? define it. We never figure it out. He's a demon that by touching people can make them, you know, uh, you know, can make them misogynistic, but also can put his hands on the cement and draw strength from the earth. Right. I mean, is the thing that he can right. do. So, okay. Yeah. Right? And it's in his blood, but we've never seen another yeah. demon like that. And mm-hmm. I, it, but he's human looking and he's part of this, you know, supposedly, presumably human family, right. his cousin, yeah. you know, this big, huge, wealthy, powerful family that hires yeah. Wolfram and Hart to bring him back. And why would they do that? Like, if Billy was your relative, wouldn't you be a little relieved when he was in the demon prison dimension? Yeah. Like, really? Yeah, I, think so. I, I don't know about that. Um, 
So I don't know. And we never find out. But then my other question was, of course, I want data analysis here. Like, what determines the time to reaction for different men once Billy touches them? Because Lila says for some it's instant, for others it takes hours. And we see such a huge contrast between Gunn and Wesley, right? Of Gunn being aware and trying to fight it. Wesley sank into it like it was a tailored suit, you know, yeah. and the way that it fit yeah. him so perfectly was was just chilling. Well, and I imagine his father, I mean, we haven't seen much of his father, but his father seems like a right asshole. Yeah. Like that may be something learned. Oh, yeah. You know, he may have that may be a comfortable, familiar space for mm-hmm. him that he's been resisting. Yeah. You know? So I just I just wondered, like, what was the determining yeah. variable for something like that? Um, Mm -hmm. And I kept going back to, okay, well, what is the show saying about the fundamental relationship between men and women? Because this was much more than a commentary on the patriarchy, right? This is like a human deep divide where at the core Mm -hmm. of it, men hate women and therefore women have to fear men. And Mm -hmm. the, the quote that you gave by Margaret Atwood, men are afraid women will laugh at them. Women are afraid that men will kill them. Um, Gillian Anderson's character actually quotes that on the fall. As well. Oh, wow. So it was it was doubly chilling for me to hear it in two different contexts back to back. Sure. Um, yeah. But for me, like, despite being raised in this, like, knowing mm-hmm. this and being on the receiving end of this kind of abusive relationship, you know, with a grown man, like, I still reject this premise. Because mm-hmm. I think I don't believe this kind of hatred is embedded in the human condition, but I do believe it's a systemic learned hatred. So I felt Mm -hmm. like it wasn't the human that they were talking about here as much as it is social misogyny. That was, yeah, that was so represented Mm -hmm. in this episode. Um, And I think that's why Wesley's line about it all going back to Eve disturbed me so much because that has become storyfied right we have we have made it not just into a story but a holy text that is then passed down from generation to generation i was taught it and Mm -hmm. everyone in my family was taught it and and presented as good right and right the word of god exactly says that you can't trust exactly so i think that really even more so than watching wesley personally on this path was just that idea um and it it just shook me Um, but then I had a different reaction than you to the aftermath of this with Fred coming Mm -hmm. to bring Wesley back because I wanted Angel to do that. Yeah. Because on one hand, like Fred knows Wesley was under possession, magical whammy, whatever. And she knows he wasn't in control of his actions. She's very generous. She's kind. She believes he's a good person. We clearly see Wesley's torment and shame over what he did. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, it felt way too close to a pattern of abuse where it is then on the woman, you know, to pat the man on the head and say, I know you didn't mean to hurt me, baby. You're a good man. You're just not yourself when you're drinking or possessed. And, you know, (laughs) like, let me make you feel better for hurting me. And and I, Mm -hmm. I mean, granted, I have a huge bias there, so I can't be really objective about it. But I didn't like that I really wanted Angel, who knows that kind of darkness, to be the one to go to Wesley and then have Wesley go to Fred 
to apologize. No. You know, and I it just bothered yeah. me. Like I thought it was No, I think you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. This is what women do. Mm -hmm. It's okay, baby. I know it'll be different. I know you didn't mean to. I know you'll never do it again. Of course, he'll do right. it again, right? Now, this is a different situation because he had the magical whammy. This is not in Wesley's nature. This is not something that is likely to ever happen again. But we do kind of erase Fred's trauma with that. I think that narratively, I mean, narratively, the choice you want to make whenever you're writing is what's going to hurt the mm -hmm. most, right? And there's nothing that's going to hurt Wesley more than having Fred come to him. So I actually, oh, while that's a good I point. completely understand, yeah. and I agree 100% with what your point is, um, Fred coming to him and being the one to soothe him after what he's been through, you know, um, I think is something that does speak to patterned behavior, that the women do the emotional labor and make the men feel better after the men behave abominably. Mm -hmm. You know, what I would have liked, I like that Fred goes to see him. I like that she says, come back. What I would have liked to have seen, you know, is that like she reaches out to touch him and he shies away from mm -hmm. her. I would like to see her being afraid of him, mm -hmm. but like going there because she's going to face right. it. Right. And that there are consequences. We're going to see a little bit of consequence for this, but it's all on Wesley's side. Fred is fine. Right. right. Fred just got like hit, knocked down, almost killed by people she trusted. You know, um, that no matter what the magical whammy explanation is, is going to have. So like after just going through this whole thing where we deliberately did not erase Fred's trauma, we are absolutely erasing Fred's trauma and making it her job to make him feel mm -hmm. better. If, she going there had been going there to say, you know, they told me not to come, but I wanted to face right. you. Like, you know, like if she had said, I'm facing you because of this and I'm going to tell you what you did to me, you know, that like you like even though he's suffering, like right there, we're in this moment where we're all about Wesley suffering, right. nothing about Fred. But if she was like, I'm going to face you and I'm going to look you in the eye and I'm going to tell you that I believe that you will never ever do anything like this again you know or something like that where she was claiming her power yes. in that moment where she was facing the thing that she was afraid yes. of i don't want you to just show up at work when i'm not expecting you i needed to control the moment that i saw you again and how much also worse that moment would be for wesley knowing that he's done this damage to a relationship that he was you know he was falling in love with her, yeah. you know, like, I think that you could have twisted the knife even more in Wesley and still honored Fred's experience and Fred's trauma without making her responsible for making him feel better. I think better. that would have been brilliant. And yeah. yeah, it was just her being on yeah. the line to comfort him that bothered me yes. so much, but you're, you're, absolutely. you're right. That would have been much better. And then we, you're we don't right. see any kind of reconciliation between her and Gunn and we don't see the aftermath for Gunn. Yeah. And, I and, and again, we see, okay, this hit Wesley so much more than it hit Gunn. So Gunn must be fine. Mm -hmm. I don't think that's the case. Gunn also has feelings for this woman. And yeah. and so, like, I just think all of that. And of, he also said, I mean, before, you know, she knocked him out pretty quickly. But he was starting to, yeah. you know, behave that way toward her, right, too. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. So, so then that all brought me to the question of, I kept thinking, why... Did it hit Wesley harder than it hit Gunn? Or why does it hit people? And yeah. then was Angel's inner darkness the thing that saved him from Billy's influence? Mm -hmm. And I don't know exactly. I don't know that I bought Angel's explanation because when he was talking about, you know, he's, he's lived with this hatred and anger and stuff for so long. Uh, we yeah. have seen Angry Angel pretty recently. I don't buy oh, yeah. that he's past it. 
So right. I really wondered what it was that kept him from falling under Billy's influence. And I wondered actually right. if, if it was affecting him, but he was able to fight yeah, it. But he's just able to control it. Well, cause the thing is we've talked about this a number of times with angel. Angel has talked about this. The monster's always there. It's not the human in me that needs killing Buffy. It's the man, right? right? You know, or it's not the monster in me that needs killing. It's the man. Right. Um, so as she said, no men's over on Buffy. Um, but, but I mean, I think the better explanation is not this flat. I just, uh, you know, 250 years, I just don't have it anymore, mm-hmm. you know. But this idea that, that he's learned how to control that monster. He lives with that monster every day. If he, you know, if in that moment he said, this is in me, I acknowledge that this is in me. I'm not going to pretend that it's not. It didn't take me by surprise the way that it might take other people by surprise. I already know how to suppress yeah. that. You know, that instinct, because that's what I do every day, you know, like the Hulk, right? We have that moment. Of course, in, in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, we have that moment where the Hulk, you know, says, I'm always yes. angry, which is the thing. <laughs> it's you know? And it's 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 not, I think, supportable in the text of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. But um, but it's one of those things. I'm always dealing with this. I'm always suppressing mm-hmm. this. Like this is a constant battle for me. You know, so when this came up, I could deal with it because I've already lived in that darkness, yeah. you know, um, and I think that 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 would have would have worked better in Angel's explanation than this simple. Yeah, I just don't have. You know, I'm all zen. Yeah, I'm exactly. All Buddha, exactly. You know? Yeah, I think yeah. you're right about that. Um, so then, my last question was about Lila. So, in mm-hmm. in thinking about darkness and light and good and evil, mm-hmm. like we didn't break her character as evil. Like, there's no part of me yeah. that thinks Lila is now on the path to light. But so, right. mm-hmm. but what I couldn't decide was was this a line for her? Like Wolfram and Hart trying to assassinate those children was for Lindsay. Or was this her reclaiming her own power because Billy and Gavin showed her what it means to be truly helpless. So she killed him to take that power back. Oh, yeah. No, I think it's absolutely optional. Okay. Too. Like, in no way do I see this as Lila turning to the light. And when she said that thing to Cordy, you know, I'm not Lindsay McDonald. When things get tough, I'm not going to switch sides. I think she's absolutely right. right. This was never about doing the right thing. This was about nobody does this to me and lives. You know, and even though it was Gavin who did it to her, it was Billy who did it to Gavin yeah. and set that up and made that happen. Yeah. Um, and so I think that Lila was like, you know, there's there's a problem. Um, I'm going to take care of it. And in no way did she give up her evil hall pass. In order to do that. <laughs> like she is absolutely still consistent with Lila and that's yeah. it. Like that's, that's who she is. So, um, yeah, I don't, I don't think there's any inconsistency okay, there. Good. Well, that makes me feel better. So after that lighthearted discussion, I'm going to brood. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So Billy is a powerful, dark and disturbing episode. We see Wesley's deep turn into darkness, Angel's ability to resist the darkness, courage and resourcefulness and kindness from Fred, sheer badassery from Cordelia and a moment of heroism from Lila. The team deals with the aftermath of Angel freeing Billy, but everyone will carry the weight of this choice and its consequences for a long time to come. Yeah. God, it's such a good episode. I mean, it's, it's so, so good. It's so difficult, but it is so good. So on to lighter topics. <laughs> Dear Kelly, Dr. Jones, what's making you thirsty this Okay, week? so even I have my limits, and... <laughs> My romantic side beat out the thirsty side this week. But the real love between Cordelia and Angel and the scenes of them Mm -hmm. sparring lit up my heart. But in an episode like this, 
Nobody's getting thirsty. (laughs) (laughs) Nobody's getting thirsty. I don't think so. Even Dark Wesley in this nope. context cannot do that. <laughs> no, yeah, no, no, no. This is not my flavor of no. Dark Wesley that I really, really like. <laughs> All right. So, Kelly, what's your favorite part? Oh, Lila showing up, stepping up, and putting an end to the evil she caused. Um, because I love seeing her do that and still be herself. And yes. if she had found a way to blame Gavin for Billy's death, I would have been well and oh truly my delighted. God. <laughs> Official head right? cannon. Yes, absolutely. Gavin yeah, got blamed because for that. she is absolutely. not taking that beating from Gavin lying down. Like, <laughs> oh no, there's no way. There's no way Gavin's getting away with that. I mean, I know that she knows that the responsibility lies with Billy, but there is no way that Gavin's getting yep. away with that. <laughs> so, what about you? What was your favorite part? Oh, God, the end Mm -hmm. with Wesley. I mean, like, absolutely, Fred being there to do his emotional labor with all of her trauma erased is not okay. But how heartbreaking that was. His Her kindness to Mm -hmm. him after everything that he had done was so devastating. And when he just breaks down weeping, and you see him sitting at the desk all by himself with all these crumpled pieces of paper that he's been trying to write Mm -hmm. her a letter. Like that whole time, like, it's just, it's so, it's so hard and it's so devastating and it makes me cry every time. And I love it. (laughs) It's one of my favorite moments in all of Angel. I think it is so incredibly powerful. Yeah. Yeah, it's really, really good. All right. To join in the discussion on Twitter, follow me at Lonnie Diane Rich and Kelly at Dr. Kelly Jones and use the hashtag still dead. For more in-depth discussion, visit the Chipperish forums. Go to chipperish.com, click on forum and join in the fun. Or you can support Chipperish Media to the tune of a dollar a month or more and gain access to the live chat and discord where you can hang out with me and Lonnie and all the Chipperish patrons who love stories so much they almost forgot to brood. Visit patreon.com slash chipperish to find out more. You can also show your support for Still Dead by going to Apple Podcasts and giving us a review. That's one of the most effective ways to show support for your favorite podcasts. Or you can use your social media platform of choice to tell your friends about us. Word of mouth is a powerful thing. And to say thanks to our rogue demon hunters who take the time to write reviews, we turn to the Prophecy Scrolls. Kelly's writing these in reverse chronological order, so post your review and you'll hear your prophecy soon. For Sarah Marinera, the powers that be have called on you to intern with Fred for a while, inventing customized weapons for each member of the team. Cordelia needs boots with pop-out stakes in the heels. Gunn needs a sword that shrinks to fit on his keychain. Wesley needs a teapot that can melt demons. Lauren needs a microphone that amplifies his power. Fred needs to knock crazy men unconscious and also make toast. And Angel needs the weapons cabinet organized and maybe some curse-proof condoms. Your job is to help design super stylish gadgets to help our heroes in their moments of need because I have a feeling that darker days are coming to L.A. There's no Still Dead next week, but we will be back in two weeks with two Season 3 Watchers, Episodes 7 and 8, Offspring and Quickening. Until then, we're sorry to barge into your arsenal here, but we really need to talk to you. 